Okay, Matthew 5, and uh, we've just finished our look at Jesus' Beatitudes last week. And uh, some of you, again, like I joked last week, we're probably breathing a sigh of relief that we're finally moving forward a little bit. Uh, but we did thoroughly enjoy that. I'm, I'm speaking the ministerial we there. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm including you in that enjoyment as well by implication. Uh, but as we, we're going to transition now into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and keep going. And, uh, but it's important to think about that in the right way. So we've, we've come through the Beatitudes and we're moving beyond them. Um, but it can be easy to compartmentalize these teachings into little sections, little categories. And that can be especially easy when we're only looking at a verse or a couple verses or three verses uh, in a week. Um, and I hope that you do see the value of taking these little chunks in order and looking deeply at Jesus' teaching, giving them a good amount of time and appreciation. But also, as we go through this, remember that this is a unified teaching discourse of the Lord. It's, it's a sermon. It's a challenge. It's a plea. He's, he's teaching. He's building. He's illustrating. He's expanding. And he's revealing truth all at one time in a, what is one of the longer discourses of teaching that we have from Jesus. So while we're moving out of the Beatitudes... We're not really moving away from them so much as we're moving forward from them. Um, I think the Beatitudes place a great foundation for the rest of these teachings in these three chapters and really the rest of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament in general. Now, we spent a lot of time discussing the Beatitudes, what it means to be blessed, what these individual characteristics look like, uh, what the good news is for the people who reflect them, and uh, there's so much more that could be said, but eventually we need to get on to the rest of what Jesus said or else we'll, we'll just be in few verses for the rest of our life. Uh, but one major point I think that is made in the Beatitudes, and it's, it's stated and unstated, is the fact that the people Jesus is describing, the, the blessed ones, they're really quite distinct from those around them. Now, when you take them all together and you read them, it's pretty obvious that Jesus is talking about a distinct individuals. It's obvious that the poor in spirit are distinct from those who believe themselves to be spiritually well-to-do. It's obvious that those who mourn over sin and unrighteousness are distinct from those who, well, celebrate it. It's, it's obvious that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are distinct, in a sense, from those who repudiate it. It's, it's obvious that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are distinct from those who are not in one manner or another. Um, and there's a reason why I didn't place in our teaching through this a lot of emphasis on the matter of distinction, and it's this. Uh, it's possible to think of being distinct as in Christ followers being distinct from the rest of the world, and to take it in a way of, well, we're clearly better. We are holier than thou. We are superior to. We're, we're elevated above the rest of the people. In other words, it would be possible to take the Beatitudes, uh, having them worked as a fruit of new creation in you, seeing them as a means of God's grace in your life, and then wind up like the Jewish leader who prayed, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, even this tax collector. In other words, it's, it's easy to make distinction uh, a legalistic term, that, that we're to be different for simply the sake of being different or the sake of being better. But while there is that danger, 
the distinctiveness and the difference of Christ's followers that he's describing from the world around them, even the religious world, is really a major part of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So we can't ignore it. And another reason why I didn't make the distinction uh, or the emphasis on distinction in that passage is because, well, when we come to our text today, Jesus makes it quite clearly, and he emphasizes it in the perfect way. We read in Matthew 5, beginning in verse number 13, these words. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is the master teacher. And uh, if you've ever taken a class on teaching or uh, maybe a public speaking class or anything like that, there's always some emphasis on the use of teaching devices uh, like similes, metaphors, comparisons, illustrations, word pictures, etc. And uh, these are all tools that are used to bring color and clarity to a, a concept. And nobody does it better than Jesus. In this section, we've come to one of the more familiar sayings of the Sermon on the Mount, the saying where Jesus says his followers are salt and they are light. After giving them the Beatitudes, giving them kind of a, a picture of a disciple, of a, of a blessed person, of a follower, someone who has taken the path and the way of Jesus for their self, Jesus then illustrates the distinctiveness and the usefulness of that distinction in a disciple of himself. Now, as we see, and as we will see, salt and light are common. They are potent, and they are evident elements in the world. They have a positive and an influential effect on their surroundings. Uh, they also share in common, both salt and light, the theme of being ineffective if they aren't used properly. Salt and light are distinct and noticeable, but it's in a positive sense. I think Peter may have had this passage in mind uh, when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. People, or Peter there, speaking of God's people, says that they are a people for his own possession. And uh, some translations say something like, you are a peculiar people. And I remember reading that as a child and uh, thinking that Peter was just saying, God's people are just weird. They're strange. And uh, to some, that might be true. But it's peculiar, not in the sense of being strange or outlandish, uh, at least not on purpose, but peculiar in the sense of, of being noted or distinct. In other words, Christ's followers, God's people, should be different. And they should be seen as different. And what is the purpose of that? 
What is the purpose of being distinct or, or different, or peculiar, a people for God's own possession? Well, Peter says it's that we might proclaim the praises of God who has called us from darkness into light. Of course, Jesus says something very similar when he says to let your light so shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So as we look through these verses today, here's a, the main idea. Kingdom citizens, Christ followers, you could say, are salt and light, so we must be salt and light for the glory of God. And we'll look at this in a way of a few questions again, or maybe statements. Firstly, we see what are we, or what we are. And uh, we read these clear statements from Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light are, they're ubiquitous. They are common features in our world even today. Uh, if you just take note of the fact that you can see me and I can see you, you'll appreciate, or maybe not appreciate, uh, the usefulness of light. If you look at any nutritional label on any food with any flavor whatsoever, you're almost sure to see sodium in some form or another, and probably in pretty good substance. Now, it's not always the case that metaphors carry well from first century Palestine to 21st century Western culture, but salt and light are still around, aren't they? So what did Jesus mean when he called his disciples, his followers, those who were listening to his teaching, salt and light? Salt and light. Well, salt, in the first place, uh, was used as a preservative and a flavoring, much like it is today. But in days before refrigeration, before freezers and coolers, uh, salt was a primary means of preserving things like meat. We all know what happens to a, a nice piece of meat, a steak that sits out in room temperature for just a little too long. Um, to put it nicely, uh, we'll just say it, it decays. It decays. The meat is already dead. The animal's been slaughtered and it's been dead for any number of days. But there are plenty of little microscopic organisms that would love to have a heyday with your London broil if they're allowed to do so. Now, we typically remedy that by refrigerating it or freezing it or ultimately cooking it. Uh, but in Jesus' day, salt was the answer. Salt was the answer. Uh, properly salted and cured meat could last almost indefinitely. And imagine the, the economic impacts and the day-to-day -day impacts of salt in a culture where there was no refrigeration. Imagine how much of, a, of an emphasis there had to be on having good salt in that day, and you'll begin to see some, I think, of what Jesus is saying. So there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, as salt, we are a preservative in a decaying world. Now, there's no question about the decay of the world, and we're not speaking here of, of soil erosion or of global warming, but in terms of righteousness, the world is a dead and dying place. So to speak, to stick with the metaphor, the world is, is prone to rotting because of sin and unrighteousness, but Christ's followers were and are to have the effect of salt. 
a preserving effect, a purifying effect in the culture around them. Salt also was very much and still is a flavoring. And uh, that's wrapped up in, in Jesus' description or use of the term saltiness. Uh, he says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. As Christ's teaching come to life in his followers, there's a sense in which there's a, a flavor. There is a, there's an added taste. That, that teaching is given as a sample, so to speak, to those around. And perhaps, like salt also does, it will incite some kind of thirst. Think of it this way. All of the vices and the pleasures of this world are, to stay with the metaphor again, sort of artificially flavored. I was reading one commenter, and I thought it was pretty funny. He said, uh, the flavors of the world, so to speak, are kind of like Chinese food. Now, hold on for a second. Um, if you've ever eaten Chinese food, you have a sense of filling and satisfaction for a few hours, and suddenly you're left hungry again, as if you hadn't eaten anything. In a world of empty thrills and empty promises, Christ says his followers are to be salt. The saltiness that a world apart from God lacks. Now what about light? Light is a marvelous illustration, but it's really taken for granted. For instance, the, the lights are on in this room right now, but we hardly notice them because it's daylight outside. There's sun shining in through the windows. But if you were to come back in this room at, say, 8 o'clock tonight or later and flip the lights on, then the contrast would be vivid. Jesus calling his disciples light sort of assumes the other half of the metaphor, which is darkness. In other words, the whole world is in darkness. You are the light of the world. It's reminding me of John chapter number three, and in, uh, in Jesus' teaching and the following uh, scriptures surrounding his interaction with, with Nicodemus, uh, he says this, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Darkness illustrates blindness. It illustrates a lack of understanding. It illustrates evil. It illustrates ignorance. And really, in a sense, all of these things kind of flow together in describing the state of the world apart from God and his righteousness. And really, light in darkness is about as stark of a contrast as we can imagine. Think of it this way. Light is an annoyance for those who don't desire it. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night by somebody flipping the light switch on without you expecting it? If you've ever been woken like that, you know that light can be an annoyance for those who aren't really looking for it. It's a, it can be frustrating to those who aren't hoping for it. Yet, if you've ever had to get up in the middle of the night and do something important, you realize that the importance of light is pretty apparent. And so it is with Christ's followers. We are to be light in a dark world. Now, these are wonderful pictures. The, the picture of being salt, 
uh, a preservative and a, and a flavoring and a decaying and the tasteless world, the, the, the picture of being light in a world of darkness and blindness. They're wonderful pictures, but the pictures themselves are not enough. For each of these declarations, you are salt, you are light, they're kind of worthless apart from their application. So the second thing we see is not just what we are, but how we are to be these things. One commenter I read, uh, he brought out the difference between an abstract definition of a word and an experienced definition of a word. For instance, just take darkness. Uh, you can look up the word darkness in Webster's Dictionary, and you'll read the primary definition is a total or near total absence of light. And that would be an appropriate and accurate definition of the word darkness. But thinking about the words in that definition doesn't really make it come to life until you experience total darkness in some regard or another. In other words, the experienced darkness is a much more potent understanding than simply an abstract definition. And in the same way, we can define what it is to be salt and light. We can have a concept of the fact that Jesus said we are salt and light. But simply knowing the definition doesn't do any good if it's not put into practice. As Jesus declares, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's, he's stating something about the nature of his followers. And there's an, a sense in which, as Christians, we are the salt and light of the world. We are designed and designated to be such. That's how God in his wisdom chose to operate, that his people would affect and illuminate the world in that way. But as Jesus so clearly points out, Salt that isn't salty and light that isn't lighting something is no good at all. What is saltless salt? We have a, a tough time probably even imagining salt losing its saltiness, but in Jesus' day, that was a real occurrence. The, the salt that was harvested uh, from places like the Dead Sea uh, was a mixture of sodium chloride, but also other minerals as well, and it was all this similar white powdery substance that they would call salt. So while it was very salty, it was possible that to get a mixture that was either so filled with other, with other substances or for the salt itself to dissolve and dilute so that the salt became unsalty. And then what good was it? It was good for nothing but to be cast out. If, if a jar of salt in the kitchen was not salty, then you'd dump it out and get new salt. Now, we don't need to take Jesus' metaphor here further than he did, but simply to ask the question, if Christ's followers or a group of Christ's followers become so infested with other elements other than the salt of Christ's truth, then we've lost our saltiness, and we don't fulfill the purpose for which we became disciples in the first place. If we've lost our saltiness, then we no longer bear the distinction. We no longer are effective as preservative or purifying or flavoring elements in the world around us. And what about light? Well, Jesus' description here gives us the same idea. If you have a lamp 
but you hide it under a basket. What good does a lamp do? When I was a boy, I had a maybe a little idiosyncrasy, a, a tendency, personality trait, where I would save up some money, you know, working odd jobs or whatever, and I would purchase something, something I would consider good and useful. But then I wouldn't want to use it because I didn't want to damage it or I didn't want to lose it or I didn't want to waste it or whatever it was. And uh, in one instance, I remember as probably 12 or 13-year-old, I bought a big flashlight. Uh, you know, one of these that took like, you know, five or six D batteries. And uh, I loved this thing. And I, I took that flashlight that summer to summer camp, knowing that it was the cool thing as a young teenage boy to have a flashlight, right? Like if, if you could come in and save the day with a flashlight, you were the man, at least to the other 12 and 13 year old teenagers that were there in the group. And uh, so I brought that thing to camp. And uh, I remember, you know, it was, it, was, it was the flashlight, you know, in my whole cabin. You know, all these other kids, they had little pocket flashlights. And I had this, you know, five-pound, you know, steel thing that, you know, could have been used as a weapon. Fortunately, I didn't have that tendency. But anyways, I remember it was, it was pretty popular among my peers. And uh, they couldn't wait to see it, you know, put into action. This thing's got to be incredible. And uh, I remember very distinctly one evening... I had taken the flashlight to dinner and uh, knowing that we were going to be doing a bunch of activities and it was going to be dark before we walked back to the cabins, I said, well, this is a perfect opportunity. And uh, that tendency that was inside of me crept up. And as we were walking back, and you have to imagine this trail that's pretty narrow and there's lots of rocks and tree roots and, and twists and turns, and it's, it, there's a lot of hazards. And my friend next to me said, why don't you turn on your flashlight? And I said to him, I remember as clear as day, um, pardon the pun, I guess, I don't want to waste the batteries. And he said to me, why did you even bring the stupid thing then? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I turned it on. I think we stumbled all the way back and, you know, there was, it was pretty ridiculous. But anyways, my stubbornness as a young teenager maybe is a little illustration of a stubbornness or a propensity of all of us as Christ followers to squander what Christ has worked in us. Think of it this way. If you are a child of God, you are light. You are salt. Your saltiness and your brightness comes from Christ himself. He is, after all, as he said, the light of the world. Now, we reflect his light. But listen. We don't do any good if our salt and our light are kept to ourselves. Look at the way that Jesus speaks. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And it's the salt of the earth, the light of the world. In other words, Jesus anticipates that his disciples, both then and throughout the ages, would have enough saltness and enough brightness that they would have a noticeable effect on the world around them. Now, I think there are two ditches that we can fall into here. The first is to say, well, the world is, is, is really good. It, it, it doesn't need any additional light. Or maybe we would say, the world is almost there. It just needs a little bit of social help to complete it. Now, this goes against the illustrations. The world is not basically good. It's, it's in darkness. It's decaying, just as we were apart from Christ. 
We all need something apart from ourselves to do what we can never do. As we reflect the light and as we spread the salt, so to speak, we're reflecting and spreading the true remedy, which is Christ. But the other ditch is to say, well, this world is, is too far gone. There's no hope. There's nothing I can do. We say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and I want nothing to do with it. How fatalistic and depressing is that attitude? Jesus declares and anticipates in this passage that his followers would have a positive, real effect on the world as salt and as light. And to that you might say, well, I'm just one person. I can't, I can't do much on my own. I, I don't have much effect on people around me. But Jesus isn't just speaking to one person. He's speaking to a group. It's, it's a small detail, but it's important to note that Jesus says you, plural, are the salt, singular, of the earth. You, plural, are the light, singular, of the world. In other words, we're not intended to individually by ourselves change the whole world. We're intended, designed really, and anticipated as the whole of Christ's church, if you will, to have this effect. A single grain of salt in a recipe, if you take it out or put it in, is not going to have much effect. But a couple of good teaspoons, well, that can give you the desired effect. You'll have something with that. A single light bulb in the distant darkness is maybe visible and it might be curious. Uh, a couple lights in the distant darkness is, is a little bit more significant, but a whole city of lights illuminated on a dark night is transformative and it's remarkable. It's something that you can't ignore. Have you ever looked at one of these satellite images of a, a section of the globe at nighttime? And if it's a clear night, what sticks out? The lights. If you look at the greater New York City area, it's like a beaming big light bulb in the Northeast United States. The light of the cities sticks out. And Jesus uses that illustration. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You, he says, my disciples are the light of the world, a city on a hill. You can't hide that. That is Christ's kingdom. That is Christ's group of followers. That is Christ's church, universal, if you will. And that is what we as a local church are in a smaller but true sense. We're a city of lights. We're a shaker of salt. Individually, we have a little effect. But imagine if every light in the city said, I can't do much, I'm, I'm going to stop lighting. Or imagine if every grain of salt in a salt shaker said, I'm just a little grain, I think I'll stop being salty. So it is with Christ's followers. If we are to say, I'm not much by myself, if we all say that, then we all collectively lose our saltiness. But as a whole, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Simply put, we ought to be what we are. 
We ought to be what Christ said we are. Which leads us to the final thing, why we are to be that way. Jesus says that we are salt and light. Jesus says that we are to be salty and we are to be bright. But why? Why do we need to do that? Why must we be this way? Again, this goes back to the discussion of distinction. Are, are we to be distinct? Are we to be different so that we can boast in our saltiness? So do you see how salty I am? And if you say something like that, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Um, or do you say, see how bright I am? Or are we to reflect Christ's teaching? Are we to reflect, say, the Beatitudes? Are we to reflect the, the new nature that Christ is working in us? Are we to reflect those things for the purpose of saying, I'm holier than you? No. Rather, Jesus gives us a purpose statement of the illustration of light. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think we could also say, probably just as fairly, let your salt be salty before others. Jesus tells us that there is a purpose in our distinctiveness, and that purpose is Godward focus and the Father's glory. That is, just as the moon has no light of its own, but it reflects the sun, we too are reflectors of the goodness, the glory, the truth, the righteousness of God, of Jesus Christ. In being salt, in being light, our aim should never be uh, the praise of men on our behalf. If, if we catch ourselves thinking something like, well, I hope somebody sees me doing this good deed, that will show them who I really am. Then we've missed it. We've, we've kept our light really for our own benefit. We ought rather always to say, I hope that someone might see a glimpse of God and glorify him. Think about this in terms of the Beatitudes. Why mourn? Why hunger and thirst after righteousness? Why display mercy? Why be pure in heart? Why make peace? We know that we are blessed in these things, but why does God desire and bless those things? Because they point back to him and bring glory to him. The most powerful testimony that we can have is a testimony that says, it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's not because of me, it's because God desires for you to see him. Now this brings up a question, oftentimes, what about good works? Sometimes, now if we're on maybe one side of the, close to one edge of the ditch again, maybe we bristle when we even hear the term good works, um, because our minds jump to a negative connotation, something akin to works, salvation. But as we go through these chapters in the weeks to come, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about good works. He spends a lot of time speaking about the practical righteousness. I think Matt mentioned that in, uh, when he taught through hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus spends a lot of time uh, talking about our works in this sermon. So we probably should be, be 
Are you prepared to hear something about it? And I will say, yes, of course, we want to avoid the legalism of what would be categorized as works salvation or works regeneration. But we don't want to avoid good works. Let's look at a couple scriptures. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see there in those verses uh, uh, an orbed, a whole orbed picture? We are saved by grace through faith. All that is a marvelous gift of God's grace. Our works do not save us, or else we could boast in them, Paul says. But boasting is not the point of the good works, as Jesus said. Rather, God has ordained that we, his people, would walk in good works as a result of his grace in us. Another scripture that, that Paul uh, was inspired to write in Romans 3.20, he says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, we read Paul's words here, which obviously are true. They're, they're scripture. They're absolutely true. And, uh, and these words are a breath of fresh air against any works salvation. We cannot be justified by the works of the law, at least in the sense that Paul is speaking of here. In other words, we cannot be made right with God from our alienated condition by good works. And someone may say, well, what about James? James says that we're justified by works and not by faith alone. And they might say, are you a James Christian or are you a Paul Christian? Well, we want to be Bible Christians, right? We want to be Jesus Christians. And he endorses and has inspired and has written the whole Bible, so we want to know what they mean. Uh, and I think some of the tension that is perceived between those statements illustrates what Jesus says very well. Think of it this way. Paul makes it very clear what he's talking about when he says... By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is, in God's accounting, our good works do not, in a legal sense, in an official sense, they do not justify us. Our good works do not atone for sin. They do not make us right with God from a position of rebellion, from our birth condition, you could say. And James, on the other hand, says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In God's sight, we're not justified by works in a legal sense, in an official sense. But listen, in the sight of man, as we are salt and light, our faith is shown in those good works that we've been ordained to. The reality of our belief comes out in our action. Our faith is justified or vindicated 
before men when we let our light shine. Faith without works is dead, James says. In other words, you could say faith without works is like unsalty salt or a, a lamp under a bushel basket. It does no good. It shows nothing. But faith with works, the works that accompany God's grace and regeneration, faith with works displays the truth behind our actions, and it points again to Jesus. It points back to the Father, and seeing that, men may glorify him. Experiencing our, our saltness. Seeing the light that we reflect of God and his ways and his truth. Men may by chance, by God's good grace, taste and see that he is good. So, Christ follower, you are salt and light. So be salt and light. Embrace the distinction that God has made of his people, not for an occasion to boast, not for an occasion of exclusion, not for an occasion of glorying in yourself, but only to point back to him for his glory. Let your light shine before others that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Lord Jesus, thank you for this teaching. Thank you for Thank you for this clarity. Thank you for being the great teacher. Thank you for, for revealing truth rather than concealing it. Thank you for showing your followers who they are, uh, what it is to follow you, what, uh, what it means to be salt and light. Lord, I pray that I and myself and my brothers and sisters here gathered today would not be saltless salt, that we would not be lamps or a lamp in this church hidden under a bushel basket. I pray that we would not live in such a way that would squander the good grace that you have given us as your disciples, as you've called us out of into the kingdom of light. May we reflect that light. May we spread the salt of your truth in a world that desperately needs you, Lord. Work in this church, in this way, in the way that you've ordained, God, I pray. Teach us to be salt and light. And may we receive glory from this, O oh Father, even in this moment. We love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.